becomes all part of creating this winning mindset and connecting all the senses to the winning mindset. But just being part of that group and a collective is, is really invigorating. I love attacking football because I love to see teams score goals. Welcome to the Competitive Mindset Podcast. Each interview, we talk to leaders who differentiate themselves and achieve high levels of performance through the lens of motivation, competitiveness, and mindset. These conversations lead to thought-provoking idea sharing and growth accompanied by entertaining storytelling. Welcome along on our journey to lifelong learning, improved performance, and a look inside the competitive mindset. Carl Craig is a head coach of the Forward Madison Football Club. At an early age, he was in a punk rock band while continuing to pursue football, which developed as the sport he loved. As a coach, he utilizes reflection and heightening all five senses to help develop the competitive mindset within his teams. Can you give me a description of your journey through life and how it's led you to be the Forward Madison head coach? It's such a profound question. We're 55 years on the belt. <laughs> So there's a lot of stuff went on over those years. I think a big part of what, what got me to the position I'm in right now is, is having to feel like I've always had to deal with adversity. So from growing up, well, we didn't have a lot of money to parents getting divorced, me and my sister living with, uh, just with our, with our mother and uh, being short on money and that sort of stuff. There's things that come moving. You know, single parent household. My mother got remarried, moved off to the Middle East. My sister and I stayed at home in England. Sister moved away, so I was pretty young when I was kind of fending for myself. And all along the way, I think I've, I've been exploring and finding ways to survive and to make do and eventually sort of find a, find a pathway um, that, that suited me. I'm sure you've heard, Billy, that I got into the punk rock music, uh, which was, you know, the new thing in the, when I was young. And really that, that helped form, form who I am quite a bit because from, from being in an industrial working class city where the options and the mindsets weren't very open, at least, you know, when I was young, it didn't, it didn't appear that way. Football was pretty much all I knew. And uh, I absolutely loved it, you know, from collecting football cards, I guess you call them trading cards over here, football cards and stickers and that sort of thing. I started to look at geography and learn about the cities of Europe and the world through football, getting reported schools saying, you know, he didn't have much of imagination, all he thinks about is football. So from English and all the, all the stuff I did, I just... I really loved the football. And then I, I guess the big shift was, I was about 12 years old and listened to, heard some punk rock music on the radio. And that was something different. It was different in so much as the, it was, it was noisy. It was, you know, it was just different, different to what was going on at the time. But I liked the energy that it brought. So I kind of followed that kind of music and, uh, while still playing football, of course. How did you get into punk rock. You heard it on the radio, you were drawn to it, but then you immerse yourself in that culture. How did that happen? Well, three or four of us in the neighborhood where we lived um, who, who thought it was great. And then we started, you know, wearing the clothes and 
and that sort of stuff, and then started to seek out places where we could go watch music. So we used to go into the city on a Sunday night into Newcastle, and there was this old uh, rundown warehouse which they called the garage, and there'd be there was a you know makeshift stage in the corner of this. Uh, I mean, basically, I think it was like an old service station, but minimal service. Like it was just a shed, a big shed where it was probably room for about four cars. But in the corner, you know, big sliding door, paint splattered walls, pretty filthy really. No bathroom, no nothing, just... And uh, there was a stage in the corner and there was a small PA system and bands would go in and play and hang out the music. So that was that was really exciting. That was like awesome, you know. So that was really what got us into that. You know, we're still playing the football, but it was that sort of culture which was out of the normal. Uh, we were dressing, maybe pals were dressing a bit different. It was kind of outrageous back in those days. It was a weird sort of identity which we were starting to evolve into or, or develop for ourselves, which we kind of, in all honesty, we quite enjoyed the attention from it. But just being part of that group and a collective was, was really invigorating. In addition to the music, I got a bit older. I stopped. It was. It became a little more than just the music because it went from just sort of a, a noisy, rowdy change in in sort of a musical form to being a little more political. And having listened to music for a while, started listening to lyrics for a bit, or a little, little more closely. It became a bit more of a somewhat political movement, sort of left-wing politics, you know, speaking about the unions and workers' rights and people's rights and animal rights, etc., etc. So, yeah, that's, that was the sort of punk rock uh, journey, if you will. The first time you really were competitive playing football and what that experience was like for you, and then compare it to the joy you received from punk rock. And well, The football, we used to play... I played football from from the time as far as I can remember back. So um, I lived in a terraced house in a place called Baker, which is in the east end of Newcastle. They, they were it was a slum it was slum cleared, so it was a really tough, rough, old rough neighbourhood. Um, and the, the local government flattened it all because it was so bad. I grew up that place. Uh, cobble back, cobble streets, cobble back streets. We used to play football, and then across the field, um, a couple of blocks away from where I lived, there was a field. You could hear the the fellas. It was a, didn't really what, realize what it was at the time, but it was a bar league, pub league, on a Sunday where they used to Saturday and Sundays where they'd play. I'd go across there and watch those games with my dad when I was really young, like three or four years old. I uh, had these little football boots, which would put the football boots on, go across the field, kick the ball and watch. It was strange in those days. The posts were always made of wood. They couldn't leave them out because people would steal them uh, for firewood and burn them on the fire to keep keep warm. So the posts were there was never any field, uh, goals, goal posts on the field in those days um, for that reason. So it was always a big... Um, a big performance before every game. Even when I was a young kid, like seven, eight, nine, playing football, we'd all have to get the posts and, you know, on my shoulders, skinny little things, carrying these posts across to set the goals up and 
we didn't have nets. So the nets were only for the pros. Uh, so that was my earliest memories. But then we used to we used to go to this youth club and play five a side. So indoor leagues on on like a gym floor on a Friday night, and I absolutely loved that. That would be my first competitive memories. But it wasn't. It, it was so I felt it was effortless. At the time, didn't even think about what I was doing other than the fact that I, I was totally immersed in it and I absolutely loved it. And as I got a bit older, I started to realise um, I could put in the words. Uh, and actually, uh, not too long ago, I've had to think back to it and, and put it into words. And it was, I suppose, what it brought me was a sense of identity in a place where it was pretty grey. The outlook wasn't great, you know, we were, we were relatively poor, we would, you know, not just my family, but all around the area, you know, would, it wasn't unheard of, it was quite a regular occurrence that we'd have our electricity cut off or our gas cut off because we couldn't afford the bills. Um, the house I grew up in, we didn't have an inside toilet, you know, we didn't have a bathroom, you know, so it wasn't necessarily the greatest type of upbringing, it was... I mean, our family were, were great, but the, the surroundings and the trappings, you know, wasn't necessarily great, but just learning to get on with it, really. But through football, you got a sense of identity, and people, I, I remember I used to go to the local sports centre on a Saturday morning where kids from all over the estate would go. Um, so I was meeting people from all over the different different parts of, you know, the area that I grew up in, but didn't necessarily go to the same schools. and. You know, I found we get on the football field on a Saturday morning and uh, just play, but meet kids from all over the place. And we'd have um, a little, be a competition. However many kids turned up, they'd just pick teams, or randomly pick teams, um, be there for about three hours. The, the trophy, if you will, was they'd give us all a token on the pop machine and we'd get a little cup of um, orange juice. That was what we'd win if you won. But it was round robin tournament. Just threw kids in together and we played. And it was absolutely awesome. And I think back to that now and, and how wonderful that experience was. Not just to get out there and play football against kids from other places in the city. Well, it was always in my area, but it was quite spread out. And you know, when you're young, your world is relatively small. So I'd, I'd probably walk about two miles to this place. But kids would be walking two miles here, there and everywhere to go to the central central spot in the dome and just play. That was absolutely awesome. Now, I would have been about seven, eight years old at the time. So I wasn't really, you know, I was, I was competitive and I was playing to win, but I wasn't thinking of it as com- competition. I was just, I was playing and I think that's the key. You like is lost and everything is so structured now and just the joy and freedom of the open play is so valuable and the word I have that really struck me there was identity you finding an identity with that and I'm curious if you can talk to me a little bit about what drew you to make that identity you know a career as you started to get a little bit older the identity to become a career was one one I absolutely loved it the feelings that I get when I play football was like nothing else. So I could immerse myself in football and put, put whatever other what other issues to one side and just be just be in the moment. You know, whether that was 
you know, especially as a kid in the back streets, it was just there. But then the career part it was, I loved it. I loved being with people. You know, I'd always been a fan of it as well. Um, so I loved being on the on the terraces singing. I'd always dreamed of scoring goals at St James's Park, home of Newcastle United. That's my hometown team. Scoring goals for them and just kind of being a big part of that and hearing the crowd sing my name sort of thing, you know. Was, money was never an issue. Never, never came into it. Um, so when I got into it uh, as a career, it was more about doing something that I absolutely loved and I had a bit of a, an aptitude for. But then as I started to, to grow within it, it was it became more about giving back. So becoming proficient and becoming educated and knowledgeable, which you know I, I had to work again. You know when I when I first started, I wasn't getting paid to do it. I would travel all around the country. I would volunteer. <laughs> I would get a little bit of work um, coaching. I, I used to. I couldn't drive back then when I first started coaching as a job which wasn't uncommon in the UK then. Public transport was pretty good. But I'd have a, a, a net with you know, 16 footballs on me short across my back, and a bag with all the cones and discs, and I'd jump on the city bus, get off in the town, get on another bus, travel all over the, all over the city, east, west, north, south, yeah, everywhere, with these footballs, you know, taking forever to get there. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was all part of the education, just it was it was kind of the connection with people is what I think is and what continues to spur me on, and I, and I think that's what keeps me going right now. I love to seek out new information and new ways of doing things, but I absolutely love being with people. I suppose it's my vehicle. It's my vehicle for trying to help. It's my vehicle for showing others that. We can share, we can have differences, we can be from different backgrounds, but football is a great leveller. It doesn't matter, matter where we're from, what our bringing is like. Well, I think it's a great leveller and it's, it's a great uh, tool for bringing us all together where we can experience things and people in situations like no other really. You mentioned a vehicle to help share your love and help give back to it. And the education part of it was really important to you. And I'm presuming that's from transitioning from a player to a coach and having such a passion that you needed to educate yourself on how to be a coach because they're very different things. Can you tell me about a mentor that you have or had in your life and what is a lesson that you use on a regular basis from them? It was a fella, and it wasn't necessarily a mentor, but he, when, I, you know, when I saw your question, I went immediately back to this guy, and he was, he was my PA teacher, or fire-head teacher, as we call it here in the U.S., Ted Hayes, Mr. Hayes, who was sadly no longer with us. But I remember one day in, in PE, you know, I was playing for Newcastle as a kid, and... In PE, I would often get put with the kids who weren't very good at football, although I was playing at the highest level I could in those days. But I would jump in and play and, and help support those kids. <laughs> Things were totally different in those days. But I remember walking off the field one day after PE and Mr. Hayes grabbing me by the ear, which was how, how they did things in those days. 
And I was like, oh. And he said, uh, Craig, one day you'll make a great coach. I never thought anything about that. You know, that came back to me a while ago, and I thought, hmm, I wonder what it was that he saw in me back then, because I would have been only 12, 13, 14 years old at the time. So he's someone that I remember for that moment. I don't necessarily think he was a mentor, but I had a guy, um, a fellow called Barney Jones, who is still over there in, in uh, the Newcastle area, Northumberland, where I grew up. You know, he was a quiet leader. Um, he, he afforded me opportunities. He was so supportive. You know, I think he, he relative to where we came from, he, he came from a, a good background. Um, and I think he recognised that where he was coming to, well, we in the north compared to the south, it was, it was economically considerably different. Um, and, and, you know, our ways were so different the south and you know um but but he he was i guess what he, he was there more than anything he, he was always there to listen he was always there to sort of support but what he was was just there he would offer information but he wasn't saying you have to do this um he would offer opportunities you know i, I would say hey is there anything happening um is there anywhere i can go can you can you show me, you know, remember back then, Billy, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have the money to buy the books. So a lot of my study was, was in libraries and just chatting. And that's, I think, one of the things that's missing so much these days as well. You know, we, uh, we would sit and chat and we'd sit and chat for hours about football and coaching and that sort of stuff. And it was normal. Um, but it was a massive part of the education. I think that that sort of searching for for information and knowledge, I think um, I think it, it it means you have to really want to be in it because the, the you know again when I look at a lot of young people now and I don't begrudge them, I see in, in particularly in youth sports and in youth soccer, there's money flying around left, right, and centre, and there's good money to be fair. I think, well, what's the motivation? So if, if the motivation is just for money, then I think that's okay because you all need money. Most of us need money in this country to survive. But I think to be the best coach you can possibly be, then you've got to fall in love with it and immerse yourself in it. And I think maybe when it's it's rewarded intrinsically versus extrinsically through you know trinkets and dollars and, and what have you, um, not to say you're, you're, you're better, but I just think it's it's maybe a, a more holistic approach, and the the search is maybe a little deeper and possibly a little bit more meaningful. And I think when you have people who fall into that sort of category or mode, then you tend to get um, you know the outcome. It's not, it's not always because I don't think there's in, in always, but I think you, you tend to get a, a a more honest, a more holistic approach to it, and I, and I think the most sustained longevity within within the art, if you will. Yeah, the motivation you just listed is a really clear way to look at it, and unfortunately, I think sometimes when people are in it, they aren't able to have that vision, and having this reminder or other reminders of the love, which is your motivation, 
is really important. And I want to transition a little bit with that motivation because competing is something that, you know, in professional sports you have to do to win. And, and we talk about winning and losing. And at that level, if you don't win, you lose your job. And so I'm curious, mm-hmm. when you have a match, is it mm-hmm. the fear of losing that you're trying to avoid or the joy of winning that you're seeking? Great question. <laughs> it's funny because um, I hate losing. I absolutely hate losing, but I love winning as well. But I would say that the, the, hate, the hatred of losing or losing stays with me longer than the joy of winning. And, and I equate that to just what Mother Nature brought to all of us, and that is the evolution. And I'm, a, I'm being subconsciously forced to apply it. So, hey, you've got to move on. So, yes, enjoy the win. But, hey, you know, that, that notion of failure, if you will, it's not absolute failure because even when you lose, there's still time, you know, there's still parts of what was on a successful, but yeah, it is about the outcome at the professional level. Um, so I would say I love winning and I hate losing. The winning stays with me far shorter of a duration than the losing. So I'm fighting not to lose um, for the, that brief moment of, of enjoyment when we win. I love that answer, and it's okay to be on both sides of the fence there, There, I think, and that that is a tough question to answer, and I've heard all of all kinds of different responses, and that's because everybody's personality and approach to it is different. Now, I want to talk a little bit about coaching, and can you tell me what you do to help improve your coaching skills? You just talked about reading and talking with people, and you probably still do those, I would imagine, but can you yep. tell me what your go-to resources to improve your coaching skills from year to year? Well, over the last couple of years, I've been fortunate enough to um, to have been welcomed into the United, you know, U.S. Soccer's Coach Education Department. Um, so I've been teaching their licenses. Um, so that was a wonderful opportunity. Uh, for the most part, however, I tend to read because that's that's what you can do: read or watch watch videos these days. But typically, read. Um, and what I like about reading is, actually, it's a slow process for me because I, I find something, my mind goes off here, there, and everywhere, and I'll come back and, and continue. But, um, you know, with the internet, although there are so many videos, I like to read and form my own opinion of what it is. And I think one of the things with video, and then this is one of the issues I have when I watch football games on TV as well, is... I'm I'm being sort of forced to watch what the producer or the filmmaker wants me to watch. Whereas when I read, you know, the, the author has written what he or she wants to write and I'm allowed to make what I want or make my own mind up and opinions of whatever that those words mean to me. And, and I think that allows me to explore much more deeply than watching the, watching the film. So I'd say reading would be my me, me favorite medium. And then it's so difficult in the pro game other than to, to, 
to dig into it other than with with your your immediate staff because you know we're all tied up in it we've got all these tasks as coaches to take care of you know it's bum 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 so you know it's important that you're you're willing to reflect in addition to reading this notion of reflection is absolutely vital for for any coach no matter where you are in on your journey um so i guess that is a tool in terms of progression for myself. Do you remember how you learned the tool of reflection? You know, it's funny because the whole process, I think, is pretty, has been pretty flawed. I got into coach education, well, I took licenses in about 1987, um, so quite a while ago, and I, I took courses. Nothing back then, it was just a case of do what I do. And, um, you know, the teacher would show you what to do and then you would, you would mimic without necessarily being a great framework and it was pass or fail. But I always had this sense that there was something missing. Um, and I didn't have the knowledge or the tools at the time to figure out what it was. But I knew there's something missing and I wanted to learn more about the teaching uh, methodology. So I think the, the methodology back then was somewhat flawed. So, but reflection was always there because it was a case of, well, you know, as simple as, simple as outcome. Never mind process, but it was, it was focused on the outcome, although it was subcut. Well, the processes were, were, were there because it was, what did I do? What was the outcome? But it, it, so it was natural in terms of winning or losing. So if you won, what did we do well? And it, it, it didn't, you know, teachers back then, well, very much in the mode of telling you what you did wrong. You know, yeah, you'd get a bit of praise, but it was either they'd be very willing to tell you what they did wrong. They wouldn't necessarily teach what to do right. My goodness, and tell you what you did wrong. Fortunately, for the most part, I was doing all right because a lot of the times, if you weren't doing it right, you'd just be you'd be on the bench. So it wasn't, wasn't necessarily the best environment for learning, but you learned. To reflect quickly and I, I had that reflection part in me so it wasn't formal it was just part of who I was because I always went out and practice I was always you know whether it was with my friends or by myself it, it seemed like every moment I had when I was young I'd go get a, I'd get my football out and I'd go in the, in the streets or I'd go kick my ball and, and dream and reflect on the games or reflect on what I'd seen on the television so I guess that would be the earliest memory of the reflection part. And I, I don't know if that is the same for everyone, but as I think, you know, now as a coach and, and having been through course, courses, it certainly it's alluded to. And now, you know, I speak about US soccer, which I'm, I'm very much a part of. Um, it is actually something that they teach these days, and it is a massive part of the coaching license uh, structure these days. So, yeah, it wasn't formally brought to me, but it was always this notion of getting better. So I guess I guess it was just there. I'm not sure how it ended up there, in all honesty. Well, it's pretty common when I talk to people that they can't really recall how it came to them, but there's mm -hmm. definitely people who do not have a reflection process and, and it doesn't come to them. And, my own analysis of it would be it's a little bit of creativity and imagination is needed in order to reflect because you have to be able to process your own thoughts and move through them. But I want to get to some of the fun stuff with coaching now. So 
you don't know me from Boo. We just met uh, half an hour ago, but right. I'm a basketball guy. I was a college basketball coach. I played college basketball. But I love all sports because I think there's a lot of crossover between them. So what I'd like you to do is tell me about your style of football that you coach and that you want to play and explaining it to mm-hmm. a terms of a guy who understands that you kick the ball and the goal and you get a point and you need more <laughs> points than the other other team. So it's funny, um, you know, in this new job in Madison, what they want is a, a style of football which engages the, the fan base and is, quote-unquote, enjoyable to watch, which uh, I suppose what you're saying, Billy, is um, a dynamic style is probably easier to watch and understand than something that is maybe a little more, for want of a better term, chess-like. But for the trained eye, you know, maybe a more measured approach is is understood and respected a little more. But I think uh, uh, a bit more of a gung-ho approach is probably easier on the on the layperson's eye. So, but with that said, I love attacking football because I love to see teams score goals. So, as we as I look to build the roster for Ford Madison in this coming season. I'm looking looking for fellas who have um, who want to go forward, who who have the athleticism to play on the what we say both sides of the ball. So obviously in soccer and as in back, basketball, you've got to be able to attack and defend. But I want fellas who can drive forward. I suppose philosophically, we want to score one more goal than the opponent. If that's five four. Well, you're living on the edge somewhat, but at the same time, it's exciting. You know, so whilst, whilst I'm saying that, I know fine well that, that that's risky business because it's easier to stop a team from scoring than it is to score goals. So if you're going home, go forward and just go boom, 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 and often you leave yourself vulnerable. So whilst I want to go forward and score goals, it's important that the roster is filled with people who are very good defensively because as as we're streaking forward with numbers, the likelihood of a slight imbalance, which might leave us susceptible to a counter-attack and vulnerable to the counter-attack, where we might just get slapped around a bit. So it's got to be measured. But, you know, you can say, well, I want to go and score loads of goals. As a, as a basketball coach, you know, there's got to be defence as well. So... I'm looking to play a brand which is, which by virtue of going attacking and looking to score goals is somewhat exciting, you know, to, to most people. At the same time in the pro game, you kind of just say, we're going to go all out. And that has to be somewhat of a measured approach because the players are good enough to exploit, you know, way too smart, coaches are too smart, players are too smart to exploit the weaknesses and they'll take you apart and you find yourself in a position where there's no way back if you're just too cavalier in your approach. I can completely understand that, and relating it to basketball is, again, there's similarities between all sports, and I think coaches can learn from each other and how they play, and I'm excited to see once you guys get back on the pitch. Now, I did a little research, and these next two things I have for you excite me. Can you explain to me the Wonder Wall tradition and how that started? (laughs) So actually, since you know you talk about competitive mindset and that sort of stuff, I'm not sure who your audience is, Billy, but um, it's 
the story's been related many a time, but ultimately, you know, I'm looking to create a competitive environment throughout that, you know, alluded to education and personal growth, growth, self-growth, self-improvement, self-improvement, etc. I've studied, been studying sports psychology and, and, and diversifying because until not too long ago, psychology behind soccer just wasn't there. People weren't writing about soccer. So Pat Riley, who I'm sure you know of, I read yeah. one of his books a long time ago called The Winner Within, probably in 95, 96, I'm guessing, around about then. Really enjoyed that book um, and some of the things he spoke about. And, that, you know, I'd read a bunch of other stuff at that time. And then I got into uh, sort of uh, meditation and introspective stuff. And, and are you familiar with NLP? No, I'm not. So neuro-linguistic programming, anyway, psychology, and um, started to explore that. But in creating this this winning environment, I was looking to create an environment which, you know, so I listen, the visuals, the audio, the kinesthesia, the olfactory, you know, the gustatory, so basically the, the five senses. So as I was addressing building this, this competitive environment, I wanted to connect winning to the five senses. Wonderwall was the auditory connection. At first, we'd just sing Wonderwall. We'd be on the bus after a win or in the locker room after a win, and I'd start to sing Wonderwall. The guys would join in, and they enjoyed singing that. You know, Some of them didn't know the, the words, but they knew the chorus. Um, so we'd, uh, that would happen pretty often after a victory, and we did all right. So you know, it would happen often enough. But then I'd, I would just walk down the corridors in the, in the locker room and what have you, and whistle the tune every now and again and just throw it in there, throw it into the ether and see, you know, just to remind them and, you know, just as I say, put it out there like misty, like the mist, you know, touches where it touches sort of thing. That was part of it. And then, you know, the kinesthesia being that it was after a win, we do it so often, you know, we'd put our arms around each other's shoulders so you had that connecting the feeling to the words sort of thing. And then I even, the olfactory part was I started, as I started seeing the effect this would have. Some of the players don't realise what it was, but I, I would have this cologne that I'd wear, and I'd always wear it on game day. So I'd squirt myself with it, and, you know, when we won, great. So I'd keep it in my little kit bag on the side of, the, at the side of me with my notebook and stuff. You know, at the end of the game, when we won, I give myself a couple of squirts of it. I go run out to every one of the players and give them a hug. And, uh, you know, they didn't have a clue what was happening. So, you know, and then this would continue. We were in a playoff game one day, and uh, we were the, the lowest seed playing the number one seed down in North Carolina. Uh, we beat them against all odds. Went off into the dressing room. As it happened, we had a film crew with us at the time. I was first in the dressing room, and when the guys came in the dressing room, I, I just started singing Wonderwall. And as the players started coming in through the tunnel, they started singing, we were jumping up and down. And Of course, this film crew got it all on film and then put that out there. So that, that I mean, viral is, <laughs> viral is an overstatement. There probably weren't many who saw it, but those connected to the football club who saw it loved it. And so here in the Twins, Twin Cities, at least, it, it spread around and 
got somewhere playing. Um, the next game we played at home, we went across to uh, like the supporters section and uh, I brought all the players across and we sang it to them at the end of the game. And they had obviously done a little bit of homework and read the lyrics and they joined in. So that was the genesis of it. And then we carried it forward during, you know, in the playoffs and I went into, you know, still looking at the olfactory part of it where, you know, the kit man who went, and, you know, I don't know if you're aware of that term, but the guy who did the uniforms, yeah. um, he'd be laying out all the uniforms in the locker room. So I'll go in early before any players got in and spray this cologne on all the uniforms. And then still I'd take it to the field. So, you know, as this went on, we won the game again. Spread the uniforms, sang one on the wall, ran on the field at the end, spread myself, ran on the field at the end of the game. But this next one, I had a bottle in my hand, and I gave the, the player a hug, I gave him a couple of little squirts behind his, on the back of his neck of this stuff, you know, so just looking to build all this stuff up. You know, you could say it was the biggest load of hocus pocus ever. <laughs> the reality was, we went on and won, and was it because of that? I have no idea in all honesty. It was all part of creating this winning mindset and connecting all the senses to the winning mindset. You know, even before the championship game, we'd went to, uh, sat in the airport in Fort Lauderdale or Miami or somewhere. And I could see some of the guys were a bit nervous. And I just did a little visualization with them. Just imagine an Alpine village. Sort of great big, you know, down at the bottom is one of those little sort of German type Christmassy houses and we're right at the top and went through this visualization um, ex- exercise about building a snowball and looking at the kids down by this little you know idyllic village at the bottom and you making a snowball rolling down the hill snowball getting so so big that if it was at the bottom it's going to crush these little kids you know just using the power of the mind and that sort of stuff so got them rolling this snowball about down the, the hill and stopping it and then bringing it back and rolling it down. I said, go on, be brave, let it go. See how close you can get it to those kids, but knowing that you have absolute control, go on, bring it back. That's how big it's getting now and send it again. Go on, see how it goes. What was it all about? It doesn't really matter what it's all about. It's what the recipient or how... The person receiving it receives it, and what he or she makes of it is, is what what the true meaning of, of it is. But for me, what I was getting at, I wanted them to be able to learn control of their emotion and understand subconsciously how you can actually control your emotion just by a little bit of thought. Because I could see the feet tapping, you know, the white faces, a little bit of, you know, not, not quote-unquote normal behavior that I'd seen from them as I knew them from the coach position. So it was an understand what I wanted them to, to, to understand was just that. You know, when things are running away from you, connect with how you feel inside. Don't ignore it, but connect with it and ask, what is it all about? What do these feelings mean? Where are the feelings coming from? And then accept that they're there for a reason. And now, to understand, oof, this can actually help me, but I can also hinder me at the same time. So what I would say to them, or to myself in my own process, I'd say to myself, well, 
Paul. Thank you. I'm speaking to me subconscious. Thank you for bringing these feelings and emotions to me. But I'm not sure that they're helping me in this moment. Is there something else you can bring to me in this moment which will help me relax and help me be in a better version of myself right now? And then when I need you to take over, when it's really important that you take over, then I'll give myself to you. And and what I when I've I've done that a, a number of times, and there was it, it's you know such a kind of liberating in a way because I I think when you trust some people give themselves to God whatever God means to them to whoever you know I give myself up in those moments to my subconscious which I believe takes care of me, and I've had some absolutely Oh, unbelievable moments when I said, okay, I'm yours. I trust you're there to do the best for me. And just have this sort of rush of energy when I've let go. I've, I've, I've been in skids, you know, ice cars spinning around in traffic on the freeway and just said, okay, call, it's over to you. You take care. And, and the heart rate kind of dropped. You know, slowed down, just saw things vividly. Emotional states going from oh, tension to so, you know, sort of almost in a state of hypnosis in the zone, just through that kind of activity. And but, but you know, that was that was practice. That's just a behaviour, but it's also a trust where when I can give myself over to the energy that drives me the energy that was given to me to take me forward it, it will serve me so long as I, there's, there's a relationship a give and take if you will i wanted in that moment to share with those players that there's, there's a level of control that you can bring to this situation there's also even more you know but you have to go and search for it you know for me i've, I've went into much deeper search um, in that moment, those players found what they needed to get the job done. You know, and I think I've, I still keep in touch with some of those guys. Kept in touch with some kids who, in the youth game, one young fella, he said, uh, I ran into him not so long ago, who's now a coach. He said, Coach, I uh, went to college to study sports psychology just because of you. And I didn't realize I was having that kind of effect on, on people, but on occasion, apparently I was. So, um, but yeah, I think it's that sort of uh, ties in a lot of things that you've asked me tonight. Hopefully, gives yeah, you a you bit better understanding of where I'm coming from. Yeah, you did a great job of putting a ribbon on that for me and tying all those things together, and especially how a coach can be such a positive impact in players' lives, not just in sport. And I don't know how I segue out of that because it was such a great answer to a question that I had no clue where it was going to go. And this next <laughs> question is completely off of the left wall. And it's our last one that I want to leave you with. Mm-hmm. If you had one superpower that you could obtain, what would it be? And what would you do with it? I think it would be the notion of humility for everyone, you know, where we're all striving to be the best versions of ourselves. 
but we all understand that we're at varying levels and it's okay. It's okay to strive for what you want. It's okay just to fall in love with the things you love doing or being part of in the groups and that we can we can all be the best version of ourselves whilst respecting one another and one another's journeys. So I don't know if, if maybe the word humility I'm thinking about, that word is not the right thing, but that would be the outcome of whatever it was that I wanted. But it comes down to, I suppose, a level of maybe a dusting of respect and humility for everyone. Um, and I think we'd all be so much better for it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Coach. I appreciate it. I look forward to meeting you out on a soccer pitch here coming up to the next season and seeing where you can take forward Madison. I appreciate it, Billy, and uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, really, you know, your questions brought me back to a place where, which I, I find is so comforting. You know, I think words, words at times for people in sports, words, words for many of us don't do what we feel justice. But I think, you know, they're the best versions of what we've got going on in an external fashion. But I think for any one of us to go inside and just reflect, self-reflect introspection is, is really where it's at. And then maybe Sandy Claus will bring me a thesaurus in the dictionary and I can be more eloquent in explaining where I'm coming from. <laughs> Next time on Competitive Mindset. They made a mistake, they're coming to the bench. And that, that's one of my motivators. But I don't leave them on the bench very long. I'm not stupid. Competitive Mindset Music was produced by DJ Jojo Moore, and all images were created by Elena Keel. Be sure to subscribe, rate, leave a review, and follow us at Competitive Pod.